It's Two Brain Radio. Every week, we'll deliver top-shelf tactics to help you improve your fitness business and move you closer to wealth. And now, here's your host, the most interesting man in fitness, Chris Cooper. My guest today is Dave Tate, and Dave is a former world-class powerlifter. He's the owner of EliteFTS.com. He is arguably the guy who brought the West Side Method to the broader audience, not just powerlifters. Dave was a writer for T-Nation. He still produces content on a daily basis, including training logs, blog posts on powerlifting and business. He does a lot of video. And like a lot of top performers in any industry, he's also very generous with his time. Uh, Dave and I uh, have interacted in the past through things like the Super Training Group 15 years ago, hosted by Mel Siff. Uh, We met at uh, an APF event many, many years ago when I was helping a buddy get ready to compete. This show is about ideas, though, and Dave has a lot of really big ones. We're talking about the fitness industry, and Dave and I have both been around for a long time. He has seen things kind of from the front. And he's going to share a lot of what he's learned with us today. This is not an episode about specific tactics that are going to grow your gym. This is about specific things that are going to change your place in the industry, change your outlook on business, and possibly change the industry itself. I'm not going to prolong this point. It's a fantastic episode, and I've probably never written more show notes than I did for this one. So sit down, get a comfortable seat, three or four cups of coffee, and let's dig in. Dave Tate, welcome to True Brain Radio. Thank you. So um, the first thing that I ever read, I think that you had written, was uh, the Periodization Bible Part 1 and 2. But even before that, you and I were both involved in an online coaches group called the Super Training List, and it was moderated by Mel Siff. You remember that, right? Yeah, I can't believe that you actually remember that because that was, it was actually an awesome source of information. It was a long time ago. Um, it was it was a really cool group, man. I I still to this day have some of the emails that Mel used to put out there, and some of the other coaches used to put out there because a lot of the I mean there was a lot of you know bullshit that went back and forth, a lot of dialogue, but a lot of the a lot of the stuff that they would put out there was like excerpts from books they were working on or articles they were writing. And they were just gold, you know. I think I have three or four notebooks just full of. Um, discussions that were from there so what what led you there in the first place dave i mean you were pretty active on there not as active as some guys but oh man i'm gonna have to think it was probably to be honest it was probably porn you know because back then (laughs) back then (laughs) nobody had access to (laughs) i'm being serious man nobody had access to get porn you know so i think it was like uh it was like all miscellaneous dot you know, there, there are all these different groups. And, you know, so somebody I'm sure, somebody I was training with, because that's where all this smut crap always comes from. It's never me, by the way. It's always somebody that gives yeah, it to right, me. Right. You know, it would, tell me, it would tell me about this group, and then, you know, you get emailed all these porno pictures. And it wasn't videos at the time, you know, the bandwidth and so forth, but it was pictures. And then when I, when, I, when I was on the site that you would search for these groups or wherever they were signed up, I just started typing in, you know, powerlifting, bodybuilding, strength coaching, and there's like altweights.net. That was another one. Um, and then there was the super training group. And so I joined like everybody. I joined like 10 of them. And then you 
down to the only one I really stayed on was the super training one. And then from that, I kind of started to build a relationship with Mel Seth to where we were emailing and talking offline quite frequently. So it was it was great from that standpoint because you know I was at the time just putting together the, the West Side seminar and trying to make sure that when I got out and started speaking that I wasn't I wasn't making myself look like an idiot because a lot of this stuff has been you know it's, I was training with Louie so I'm not saying I don't tr- I didn't trust Louie or I don't trust Louie I just wanted to be 100% certain that what I would say was was proper, you know, that I didn't want to get up there and say this is the conjugate method when it is the concurrent method, you know, and that was one that confused a lot of people. Um, so I wanted to know, you know, what the hell is it? You know, which one is it? Because what I'm reading is it's the concurrent method, you know, and conjugate kind of means something a little bit different, but still kind of fits with the West Side stuff. So Mel was helping me out a lot in that regard and then helping educate me a little bit on areas where I was a little deficient in. Um, strength deficit was one. The other one was the um, aerobic capacity and the role that that plays in the strength athlete. Uh, a lot of, I learned a lot through him, you know, was able to, to blend that and be able to put together a better presentation. And But the funny thing about that list is, you know, the thing that still resonates with me today is um, – Paul Chet called me a dump truck, man. And it was, it was, it was something about somebody asked the question because there were still beginners on there too. And I, at that time, I, I'm not going to say I was an advanced in any way. I was an advanced lifter, you know. But as far as an educator or a coach, I wasn't really advanced at that point. I was kind of like on my way. And somebody asked about how they should today. It would be known as brace themselves, you know, for a squat. And I said, well, you need to, you know, pull all the air into your diaphragm, you know, tighten the, the entire area, you know, so it feels like your spine is actually being crushed in with the obliques and the abdominals and the lower back. And then once it feels like that, you know, just flex into your belt as hard as you can. And Paul kind of rings in and said that that's not true, that it, it may make you stronger in the short term, but it's, it's, it's like a dump truck, you know, you're going to be able to haul more weight, you know, but you may have a fuse, you know, in the truck that's not really working correctly, right. but you don't know it's not working correctly until it actually breaks down. And I just couldn't get over the dump truck thing. I'm like a dump truck, you know, a dump truck or something like a trash. <laughs> it's like a, it's like a fucking trash truck, man. It hauls around trash. I don't haul around trash. I fucking haul around iron. And, um, so we were kind of going back and forth and it wasn't really, heated, you know, it was, you know, just sharing different opinions, and from from a, the scientific and anatomy standpoint, I was a little out of my league, you know, I was six years out of college, and was, it was kind of getting my dick handed to me a little bit, and um, so all I could keep falling back on was, you know, the stupid meathead shit that people still do today, and younger younger educators still do, you know, it's like, well, what do you squat? Well, it really doesn't fucking matter in this conversation, you know, so it's, you know, I was falling back on the same stuff that if you, if you went to the APS Senior Nationals and asked everybody there how many of these guys suck their stomach in when they're squat, nobody does. You know, I know all these eight, 900 pound squatters and nobody does. Um, and so it, I kind 
you know, pulled a lot of the science and, you know, spoke about what was exactly happening with what lifters, namely power lifters, were doing and why it was effective and why, you know, the other way would not be the most effective way. And then it just kind of, you know, with, with that, you know, something else, it's like, it's like the news, you know, after like 24 hours, you're into a whole new news cycle, something else is already kind of spinning around. But the interesting thing with that was years later, um, Paul and I were both speaking at the, I think it was the 2005 Swiss Symposium, and they were having a, a Q&A with, I think it was five or six of us that were up on stage, and he ends up sitting down next to me, and I'm thinking, oh man, no, not, not the dumb truck guy. <laughs> and, um, you know, he, he reaches over and he kind of taps my leg, and real calmly and says, you know, how you doing? I'm like, good. You know, and so we just kind of, we made small talk, the best that you could make small talk when you're doing a Q&A. You know, it's because right. you don't want to really over speak anybody else that's out there. Um, and um, so afterwards, you know, we talked a little bit and discussed, actually brought that back up, you know, and either I brought it up, or I'm not too sure who brought it up, but you know, he explained in more detail, you know, what he was really talking about. And even even at that time, I believe, I had just left personal training. And so I had eight or ten years under my belt of personal training. And everything that he was saying was just dead on. It was, it was exactly right. You know, that I was able to explain, you know, you know here's, here's what a lifter has to do. You know, and so we, we basically agreed on 90 to 95% of what each other was saying. It's like the disagreement was really on like just like 5%. So I learned a real valuable lesson that day is that, you know, the internet, obviously you can take things out of context and, you know, and that can kind of then reflect on that person. But what I learned is, you know, a lot of the debating and a lot of the stuff that you see online with people that have been around for a long time, most of them typically agree on 90 to 95% of everything that they're saying. It's, it's the, and, and that 5% that they disagree on, that's typically dealing with just the general specific populations that they're, that they excel in. And so it, when you're online, everybody, the perception seems to be different. Like all these guys only agree on 5%, but they disagree on 95%. And it's totally wrong. That's amazing insight, Dave. And, and also, I think uh, people might have misperceptions about you uh just because of your background with powerlifting you know um so i was lucky enough to actually meet you at an apf event and uh you probably don't remember this but i was uh in it was in a ballroom and and outside in the hallway was the warm-up area and they had a couple of monos out there and uh guys were warming up and i wasn't competing um i was just helping guys load plates basically and you kind of walk through you got a booth set up and uh, I bumped into one of our guys and said, oh, I'm sorry, excuse me. And then you just kind of kept going on your way, right? And I'm thinking, hey, there's Dave Tate. Um, why is he so polite and nice? Why is that, Dave? That's just who I am. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I guess I can't really answer that because it's, it's, just, it's just who I am. You know, the people, I guess, okay, I guess there's, you're asking two different questions here. Um, why is the perception different online? I guess would be the real question there. 
addiction, you know, for a lot of people. Yeah. And so the way that I would then have to speak and write would have to be, you know, who I really was so as to not validate the impression that was put out there in the first place. Do you find that's true with a lot of top performers in business and in sport that uh, maybe they're nicer than you expect because they really don't have anything left to prove? Um, I don't. I don't. I don't know because sometimes that's really not the case. You know, it's. I think that it, it really comes down to. It, it comes down to not them so much as the people who are going to approach them and what their preconceived stereotypes or notions are going to be. You know, so if you if you think somebody's a dick and then they do something just simply just say excuse me and walk by, you're like, oh my god, I can't believe he did that. You know, so just a, a normal behavior for a normal person then becomes magnified. Now, I'm not saying that it's just, it's it, that you should create this big giant false impression that you're a dick just to make things look magnified because that's really not what's happening. Because what's really happening is you look like a dick on the macro level, but on the micro level, the people that know you, you know, under, realize that you're really not. So the, the key, you know, from the person who's, who's doing the projecting is to try to get um, those two to blend, you know, to become the same, you know, so nobody's really shocked or, you know, surprised one way or another. But at the same time, you know, people shouldn't feel like they're afraid okay. to approach somebody just because of who they are. Because this is a really small industry, you know, in powerlifting, it becomes even smaller. When I say industry, I'm speaking strength fitness industry. You know, it's, it's still, I mean, it's, it's, it's a multi-billion dollar industry, yes, but at the end of the day, when you're dealing with people who you know, have influence, it's, it's still a small industry. And these people that have influence, they're not like, for the most part, they're not going out Christmas shopping and people are like, oh my God, can I get your autograph? Right. You know, it's just, it's just not happening. It's not happening with the best personal trainer in the world, the best gym owner in the world. You know, it's just not happening. So when somebody comes up and asks them a question, more than likely they're, they're way more than happy to answer because that's, it makes them feel important. You know, like, like they, what they've done and what they've accomplished actually has enough value that somebody would want to take the time, you know, to actually ask what they think about something. Yeah, and, you know, I was listening to uh, Henry Rollins uh, from Rollins Band, obviously, a couple of months ago, and he said he had this rule that he never said no. You know, you could have said no to a lot of different opportunities. You could have said no to this interview. Uh, do you consciously follow that rule? No, I don't. And when I read that, I'm like, oh, my God, are you kidding me? Um, just because there's so many. And I, I read the same interview, and it's, it's I had to read it a few times because, I mean, he, it wasn't actually, I don't think it was one that he, I think it was a, a big fake. It was a video, I believe, because um, he was talking about working in like a deli or something like that. And I was trying to put myself in his position because in this industry, it's, you know, you can say yes to some things. And I mean, any, any decision you make, when you look back on your life, you know, if it's big or small, there, 
your life. You know, so I usually put a little bit more thought in some of the bigger decisions, you know, like, you know, a podcast and stuff like that. That's just more along the lines of, do I have the time to be able to do this? You know, and if I do, then yes. If I don't, well, then no. Um, now, do you want to do um, X certification, you know, for X company? <laughs> that, that takes, you know, that, that's a lot of thought. So, um, I've probably said no to a lot more things than I've actually said yes to. And that is because of the, the aim of the company, you know, is to live, learn, pass on, and it's a, it's a value-based company. So if it, if it doesn't kind of fit the aim and it doesn't fit with the value structure that the company's built on, I'm not going to do it because it's not fair to, you know, the company. It's not fair to those that represent the company, and it's not fair to um, myself. You know, and it's not fair to the future of the company either. So talking about the values that the company's built on, maybe let's walk through the history of Elite FTS a little bit more. Um, were you still at Westside when Elite started? Uh, yes. Yes. It started, I mean, if you want to go way back into the history, um, I left Toledo to come to Columbus for two reasons. I mean, there was really one reason, but I throw the other one in there because it was a factor. You know, my, my wife's family was from here, and we were engaged at the time. So, you know, I had, actually at the time, I kind of had three choices of where I was going to go. I was either going to go to Detroit because I was making money working in strip clubs as a bouncer, and for I, mean, I did that for a lot of years, so I really honestly kind of thought this was going to be the rest of my life. And, um, and then the money, the, the personal training really wasn't a profession. And I found out real quick, you know, after the first internship, I did not want to be a strength coach. And so a lot of the things that, you know, I was going to school for or graduated for were kind of being eliminated. And so it was either going to be Detroit or I was going to go to Cleveland and train at uh, Black South World because I knew a lot of the guys there at the time. And they, I, I was powerlifting since I was 13 years old. So I had a lot of, you know, these Ohio powerlifters, which were just awesome at the time and world record breakers and, you know, very well known. And they were coming out of Columbus, Cincinnati. I mean, he had, he had Pacifico out of Cincinnati. He had Louis guys out of Columbus. Then he had John Black's guys out of Cleveland. And, and then there was Louis and Westside and I decided to go with, with Westside because uh, my wife's parents were here I mean that was that was definitely a factor but Lily was the one that took the time to help me the most when I was a kid and it would just be you know all the other guys I would walk up and ask questions and they would always answer and kind of help you know Lily was the one that would always come over and say how you doing how's your training going I mean, 13 year old kid yeah. you know 14 year old kid and um so that seemed to be why, you know, why I came. Now, when I came here, you know, then, like, reality check hit, you know, just most of my life up to that point was, you know, tips, you know, from <laughs> pole dancers was <laughs> how I made my living, you know. So it was pretty much it was cash most of the time. And I get a check every two weeks, so that was kind of insignificant compared to what I was making, you know, from a cash standpoint. But then 
yep. you know, the tiles or whatever it is, and I got that yellow crap on one side. Yep. And so I did that the next, next night, was just itching like a motherfucker. I'm like, man, I need something else. And then they said, do you want to go into how the hell's a nursery? This shows you my intelligence at the time. I'm like, yeah, I'm at a nursery. That's cool. I think I'm going to go there and unload diapers off the truck. Yeah. Nah, man. It was unloading trees off a fucking truck. <laughs> Leave. 
I knew it's not money. You know, more than likely, they're just not being asked. So I kind of banked on that. And then spent the first six months and hit the 50000 and then hit like 180000 for the first year. Then we capped. After two or three years, it caps off at about 200000 225000 And eight years or five years later, I started to realize, you know, I'm, every morning I'm getting up, I got clients at 6 o'clock in the morning, and then I would train them until about 8.30, leave, go to Westside, train at Westside until roughly about 11.30, get back for a 12.30 appointment, and then stay at the club until 9, and this is what I was doing six days a week, every day of the week, and there was, I, I could not make any more money. Right. Everything was, everything was capped. There was just no room, and, you know, I wasn't smart enough to think of this whole semi-private thing, which is going on now, but it, I can almost guarantee if I did, because um, my, my clients wouldn't have fell for it. I would not have known how to sell that very well, because they, they, they saw, they, they, they saw me as a servant, you know, it, that's kind of how personal training was back then. Anyhow, it's, you know, Hey, come meet my trainer. It's kind of like, come meet my cleaning lady, you know, and you just kind of deal with it. <laughs> and, you know, cause it's your profession and, you know, it's, I really didn't care because my, my first priority was what I was doing at Westside. All this other shit was just helping me to be able to train at Westside and do what I wanted to do through the sport. But I didn't take that opportunity and not use it, you know. So through that, I was able to obtain my ACSM certification, the NSCA, CSCS, and then the continuing education and everything that had to go along with that. And from that, I, I, I know it's a very long answer, but it's all going to kind of come together here in a minute. Oh, that's good. From that and, and having to go to conferences that personal trainers were speaking at and then going to conferences that strength coaches were speaking at and then conferences that um, was more rehab. I was actually, at the time, it was called post-rehab because, I mean, I couldn't go to a physical therapy conference. And we weren't licensed to be able to do any kind of preventative or post-rehab stuff. So there was like a post-rehab center sector. So I'm learning from all these different people and I'm building these networks because I needed to know how to train my clients more effectively because they were really fucking out of shape. I wasn't used to that. You know, I, I grew up in gyms where 135 was on the bar at all times. You know, and yeah. I still remember to this day the first guy I ever trained in that gym. I walked over and I threw a fucking quarter or I threw a plate on each side. And as soon as he took it out, I'm like, oh, fuck. He ain't going to do this. You know, so I pulled it back in and I put a dime on each side. The fucker could barely do it for three and it looked like horseshit. Yeah. It's like, oh my God, what are we going to do? It's like, okay, let's just go over to the machines. And I went home that night and told my wife, this dude couldn't even bench 135. You know, he really couldn't even do 65. And so my whole mindset had to shift, you know, and how can I use, you know, what I know from powerlifting to be able to help these people. But at the same time, they need to be able to get out of the cars. Um, I always use the example of, you know, if, if their car was a Mercedes or some, you know, lower to the ground car, and then somebody dropped them off and they were on the curb side of the car, how are they going to get out? You know, because your ass is right by your foot. You know, so yeah. to me, that's that was one of the goals that I had is they need to be able to get out of the car no matter where they park. Um, you know, if they got a twist because the door can't open real far and that kind of stuff. And I wasn't going to find that through a fucking power lifter. You know, because power lifters, you know, we just open the door and roll out. You know, <laughs> they, 
you know, then crawl, <laughs> crawl, put your hand on the tire and kind of pull yourself up like you use a power rack to pull up from a floor press. Yep. Um, but anyhow, I'm going to all these different things. And then I'm at Westside, which is bringing in a whole different breed of coaches and then learning, learning from Louie a whole style of training that I was completely unaware of um, and study the shit out of training through college. So what I found was each one of these subgroups didn't like the others for whatever reason. You know, strength coaches didn't like powerlifters because all they can do is squat, bench, and deadlift, and they all wear gear and take drugs. Strength coaches or powerlifters didn't like strength coaches because they were all weak and they can't squat for shit. Um, nobody likes personal trainers, you know, because they don't have to work with real athletes. For, you know, the personal trainers didn't like the strength coaches because, well, they don't know how to work on the individual. They only know how to work on groups, and you're not going to actually help anybody unless you can work with them at the individual level. Physical therapists pretty much hated all of them and liked all of them because they were sending them all their business and didn't feel that they were doing things to keep the muscle in balance. So I'm, I'm kind of learning from all these and putting these pieces together and saying, you know what, nobody's nobody in any of these categories has all the answers. But if you pick and choose, you can put something really cool together for yourself to really help avoid a lot of problems, you know, and that's when the concept of Elite FCS kind of came together, is if I could have, and at the time, I was selling, like, shit that the club couldn't get, you know, physio balls were one, you know, things that, um, things that, I was having my clients use that they could use at home. So I was kind of selling them some stuff here and there. Um, some expressed interest in like creatine and stuff like that. So I set up an account to be able to help them with that. And the income from all that was basically nothing. I mean, it was minor, but it was a little bit. And <laughs> so I, this concept of putting in these professionals together under one banner where people could answer or ask questions and then get answers, but not really be told what to do. Like, here's here's not, here, we're not giving you the training program. We're going to give you the information that you need to help develop your own training philosophy. And the site started as a Q&A. And before the site started, I was answering questions on deepsquatter.com, which kind of showed yeah. me that there was a lot of misunderstanding as far as the West Side training. And then the more that I dug online, there's really misunderstandings on a lot of different things. So when we launched in 2000 with just the Q&A, people, you know, a lot of our answers were like, you know, you, you just need to get this, you got to get the super training book or you got to get this or you got to get weight releasers or, but then they're like, well, we just want to buy it from you. And I'm like, all right, I guess I got to figure this out. Um, so that's kind of how that all came about. So it came about from answering the questions and what put together the professionals that could answer those questions, but have be semi like minded. Not, I don't like the term like minded because like minded just tells me you're going to get the same answer from everybody. Semi like minded means that those those people who are part of that team or part of that group will have different answers and will actually challenge each other a little bit, and then somewhere in the middle is going to be the best answer for everybody. I remember the you know the earliest version of that site. Uh, there were a lot of training logs on there too, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so what 
what made you take the jump from there into like more mainstream uh, publication? You know, T Nation and the Periodization Bible. That was a real watershed moment for a lot of personal trainers. I think. You know, how did you get there? Um, they sent me an email, and you know, I had I had the articles that I was posting on our site, and then there were the training logs and the Q and A's, and. I think TC Walma just sent me he sent me an email he wanted me to write and I wasn't familiar with uh, with him at all and my, my to be honest my biggest fear is you know my writing skills were not good and my grammar and spelling is fucking horrendous and I'm like oh fuck you know I'd like to be able to do this but I didn't know how the whole thing worked you know I didn't know that they would edit the stuff and get it and all that and I Told my can't, and when he asked why, and we started talking back and forth, it's just, dude, my, my writing's terrible. And so he basically told me, I don't give a fuck, you can write it on a napkin and I'll make it an article. And I said, well, it still needs to be, you know, I still need to see what's actually going out. You know, it has to be, you know, what what my thoughts are. But I, so it was, I would write it, and then he would, you know, spell check, grammar check at it, and send it back, and I'd look at it and put it out. But it was just them contacting me. Um, and it, it, it was great for me because I didn't have an editor. You know, I couldn't afford one. You know, I, I didn't have... And actually posting articles on our site was a bitch. I mean, it was easy to do the Q&A because it was all... You know, there was back-end programming to be able to do that and to flush the answers out. The training logs were easy to flush the answers out, too. You know, shit like WordPress didn't exist back then. Right. So to post an article, it was going to be all HTML. It was just this huge pain in the ass. Well, fuck, this way they were posting it. And then I would just put a link to it. It was like, this is awesome. You know, now I can put out, you know, better content and have it go through them and then still share it to the readers that are coming to the site. And so that's kind of how that happened. So, you know, from there, it was just a matter of, it was just right about a lot of these things, all these questions that I've been answering. Let's, let's kind of answer them all in, you know, a format that's in an article so it's easier to digest for everybody to find instead of having to read 100 articles at a time. So obviously, uh, you know, you really started to ramp up content production around that time. And most of your content was about powerlifting. And then you wrote Under the Bar, which was about Dave Tate and powerlifting and business, right? Mm-hmm. So what made you want to write that? I mean, was writing sort of becoming natural to you by then? No, it was the, you know, part of the, the aim, you know, to live, learn, and pass on extends further than just being, you know, passing on strength training information. You know, the one of the biggest goals that I had from the very beginning was to be able to empower, you know, other lifters so they can see that they have all the skills to really be how they want to define successful and anything that they want. You know, they, they know the discipline, they know consistency, they know, you know, focusing on a target and working towards that target. They know there's going to be adversities working towards that target. They know you got to work around or through those adversities to get to that target. All these things they're doing in the gym when they're training for meets every day. 
kind of tie that together a little bit. So when people would read it, they'd be like, oh, you know, maybe I can do that. Instead of thinking, oh, that's beyond me, I'm just a meathead. And so that, that's kind of where the book came out. This, the, the other part of the book was I wanted to be able to, um, I had two babies at the time, you know, two little kids. I wanted to be able to leave something for them in case, you know, I croaked that they would have to kind of remember, you know, who their dad was and what I stood for and what my values were. Wow. There's a lot of gym owners listening to this right now, Dave, and, and they, you know, following your example, they know that they should be creating content. Um, you have said in the past that it doesn't come naturally to you, or it didn't at first. Uh, you know, what should they do to really get started on that? Um, well, the first thing is, you know, if they're a gym owner, they need to make sure that they're focusing on things that are going to be able to service the gym members or to be able to bring in gym members. Because, you know, they can write the best content in the world and post it online, but if that isn't getting people to come through the door or it isn't validating their worth that of the current members that are coming through the door, well, then maybe their, their time needs to be spent on something else. But there's everything needs to be tracked. You know, every indicator needs to be strategic, or strategically tracked in one form or another. And where I've seen some people make mistakes is they'll throw out and start writing a ton of content and then realize that that, you know, it, it could be for a bigger publication like the lead FTS or some of the others that are out there. And it's not really doing anything. It's not really bringing people to the door. <laughs> In that regard, they got to step back and think, you know, look, you're being published by, you know, these, these outlets that reject you know, 80, 70, 80% of all material that comes in. So just that it got through is something that, you know, should be promoted, you know, across your, to your members that it was done and he's promoted, not in an egotistical way, but promoted like, you know, congratulations to if it's a staff member for being published in because that's just going to validate that they know their shit, which helps promote your brand. The content that most of the gym owners and private training facilities should really be concerned about is, you know, do they have a mailing list for their own members? That's where they should be producing content, you know, and being able to email it out to them and then asking them to share that with other people and that type of stuff because your number one source of, as a gym owner, your number one source of memberships or referrals, everybody knows that. But nobody has referral programs that they're actually tracking and trying to quantify so if they're going to use the content, they use the, use the content to try to drive those referrals, and that's the best way to do it. So if you write something that's really good and you put it out to your mailing list and you only have 100 clients, but that one client sends it to their friend, and now all of a sudden their friend knows who you are, that's step one. You know, they do it a couple more times, that friend's going to start coming in. Yep. So, yeah, content content is very important. It's extremely important. Um, but it can't consume as, as a gym owner or training facility owner. It can't consume your, your whole entire day. It's just, it's just part of your strategic plan, uh, plan. And it will, it will take you much further than fucking posting on Facebook all day. Right. So, you know, just in the same way that I thought uh, opening a CrossFit gym in 2008 was basically uh, going to let me be a power lifter because uh, it would buy me a Texas power bar. 
Um, a lot of coaches are getting into this now because they just want to train, and they think that if I open a gym, um, I could just stay in the gym, right? Have you ever thought about yeah. opening a gym, Dave? Yeah. No. <laughs> what? I, mean, I have is, is, is part of our company, you know. Yeah. We sell the equipment, so I have a, I don't know what this is, I'm in it right now, like a 6,000 square foot facility that we run seminars and so forth out of. There's, there's, I, I don't want, I wouldn't want to open this up and have it be a gym. I just, there's, there's, it's not because I don't think it would be profitable. It's not because I don't think it would be, you know, a great thing to do. It's just because, you know, I'm an internet retail and that's what my business is. You know, my business is trying to educate the masses, you know, educating, educating them out, uh, educating and outfitting the strongest athletes in the world or athletes in general. That's what I do. You know, that's my business. My business is not, you know, personal training is not being a gym owner. So it, it would take away from the time that I need to do the most important things. And you know, I don't want to worry about, you know, if I have a manager that's out here, if the toilets are not working or, you know, as you, anybody that owns a gym, there's a million things that go wrong all the time. I mean, there's always something. And I don't need those always somethings when I already have a company that has a whole bunch of always somethings. You know, so it's just it's just doubling it and it's not working towards the vision of what the company is. Now when I can use the facility that we have, you know, for seminars and for training videos and those kinds of things, then I'm using it for the vision that I have. But no, I've never considered wanting to be a gym owner so I can put that out there. But we have outfitted enough gyms that I can kind of tell what 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 is what who's going to be successful and who's not really fast. And there's been many people that I've spoken to that wanted to open the gym. That when we were done speaking, I don't. There's no way they are ready, and they're going to they're going to fall on their ass. And I'm not trying to challenge them. I'm not trying to create a mindset where like fuck him, I'm going to do it anyhow. They're just not ready, man. They think it's something way more than what it really is. They don't understand the total reality of all of it because they are typically a lifter and think that they're going to have all this time to lift. And, you know, never take into consideration that, um, I like to, a lot of them usually are, before they open a gym, were a trainer someplace else. And, the analogy I like to put out there is, you know, how many times and how great were your training sessions after you spent eight hours on the floor training clients? You know, usually it's not that great. And in most cases, a lot of times they went someplace else to be able to do those training sessions. Well, imagine if you had to do it in the same place. You know, so you got eight hours on the floor, then you're going to train. Or, you know, I'll just train during lunch. So you get all your clients knocked out, then lunch comes, and you know what, you're something happens with the receptionist and she's got to leave and you're stuck. Yep. You know, so the, the whole training aspect, when you have your own gym, unless you're willing to hire, hire more people than what most can afford, you're going to get stuck missing more workouts than you think. Or having to put them in at times when are not optimal, especially if you're trying to train with a group of people. Unless you shut the gym down you know, the gym's going to close every night between 5 and 7, you know, which is stupid. Right. But, you know, I know some people that have done that, you know, so they could be able to get their training. 
So I'm not, uh, yeah, I'm not saying that you can't train. You know, you most definitely can. I mean, any job's going to come with its, you know, stresses and, you know, the ability to train. But, you know, being a gym owner or actually any business owner, as far as I'm concerned, what I've learned over the time is, you know, training partners become very, very difficult because your time on when you can train may change, you know, by the hour. You know, every single day, it's really, really hard to be able to lock down a time and say, this is going to be when I can train. And then you can try to put it on your calendar first, but there's going to be other things that are going to be higher priority or should be if you're running the business that might get that pushed back a little bit. So the way that I've gotten around it is I put my main training sessions on the weekend when we're not open and that way nothing can really fuck with it. And then during the week I do all the accessory type stuff and it doesn't matter when I can do that. Okay. So, you know, a lot of these CrossFit gyms, I mean, we have an entrepreneurial opportunity for the first time. You know, most of the people owning these gyms are first-time gym owners. Um, what should they know coming into the game? You know, what's, what's one thing you wish you could tell all of them? You're going to work way more hours than you ever thought you would, and you're going to get paid way less than you ever have in your life. So once you start calculating it out, what you make per hour, it's, it's minuscule. So you have to be in it for the love of it. You know, I always like to say passion trumps everything. And this is kind of one of those cases where, you know, passion trumps everything, but, you know, education is still needed. You can be certainly passionate, you know, about training. And, and, that, and that's great. You know, that's, that's going to get you in there and, it, you know, it will get you and you'll work hard and all that other kind of stuff. But that passion, that passion, as soon as you become an entrepreneur and as soon as you open that gym, that passion needs to become being a, a business owner and not being, you know, the, the trainer. And if that doesn't happen, then that passion is there. You're going to be fucked because you're not going to be willing to dig in when things get tough. And you're not going to be willing to do the extra work or, or do the, the, and when I say extra work, it's not, and this kind of all ties in together with, you know, it, when you're training to try to get stronger, you're going to get to a certain point where you realize it doesn't matter how fucking hard I work. I, I got to get, I got to get smarter. You know, I got to get better. You know, business is the same way. It doesn't matter how fucking hard you work. You can go in your gym and scrub your floors all fucking day till you're sweating and your hands are bleeding from the mop. That makes no, it, that doesn't fucking matter. If that's all you do every single day. Now, there's no doubt you're working hard. You're working your ass off. But you're not doing things that are pr productive and making the business better. I'm not saying you need to have dirty floors, but you get the point. You know, you have to become smarter. And if you're really passionate about building that business, and if you want to reframe it and say that you're helping other people, if you're really passionate about helping your gym members and helping people, you know, obtain better fitness through the facility, well, then you need to get more passionate about getting more people in there because that's what makes you successful. Who for you is a model of business success in our industry? I don't have one. You know, I've, I've tried to, I've tried to kind of always avoid that because um, I don't use that as my marker. 
you know, what I use as my marker of the values that were established when I founded the company. And the way, the way to do that and a quick way to kind of, I'm going to go through this really, really quick, but, you know, people have to really think about it and actually do it to understand how this, how this really works. Is if you sit down and write down, you know, the top 10 or 15 people that have had the greatest influence on your life or the greatest positive influence on your life, and you just write their names down. And I ask people to do this freehand. Don't type it. Um, freehand triggers more or more thought in your brain, so it will bring back more memories. But you write those down. And if you can't think of people, think of like television characters, comic book characters, movie characters, you know, just any fiction, non-fictional character, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Write down these 15 people and then write a statement, you know, one or two sentences of why. What, what do they say? What do they do? What do they stand for? And once you have that list and, it, and well, if you can't, create that list and through the mentorship programs that I do I've had a few people that have not been able to create a list of 15 people that positively influenced their life if you can't create that list and write down 15 people you can't fucking stand through, throughout your life that have negatively influenced your life and then why so now, now you got one or the other as far as list or if you want you can do both now, when you do that, read through and think. And if you can't come up with what values are, just Google search human values, and then you'll get a list of, you know, 100 values. And look and see what values each one of these, what values keep popping up. You know, some people, it could be trust. Some people, it could be, um, you know, this guy was always on time, you know, so promptness. Some people could be this guy always looked good you know he always so it could be um perception appearance and whatever these are you're going to see that they're going to really resonate and over 15 people you're going to see a few that are going to like four of those people are going to all share the same value and if it's negative it's just going to be the violation of the value like you hate this person because you know they ripped you off which means they're dishonest which means you value honesty um, so once you have those all down those are the values that created you so they're specific to you and those are the things that if somebody violates it or you violate it yourself which happens we all make mistakes keep you up at night and if you think of those things that have kept you up at night, usually it's a violation of one of those values. So once you have those all established, then you have the words, and now you just have to change the meaning of what it stands for from singular to plural. Because it's not about you when you're in business. It's about the business. So you have to go from me. I call, I call you have to go from me to we and then you write a defining statement for what each one of those mean and that's what determines what your company is going to do that's the rules of your company what your primary aim is or your mission statement that's like the goal of the company so if you know the goal then you know 
know the rules you're going to play by. You don't need other people to look up to or other role models because you already know the game and you already know how you're going to play it. You just need to do it and execute it. Now, that's not saying I'm not looking at other people, you know, for ideas. And <clears throat> Richard Branson and, you know, Tony Robbins and Michael Gerber and, you know, all these people I pulled great ideas from, but not their philosophy, you know, because the philosophy is already determined based upon, you know, my own values. And then as long as I'm bringing people into the company that kind of share those values, I have the blueprint. It's just sticking to it and making sure that if, you know, something's violating those values, they're, they're gone. You know, they're no longer associated. You make them free to the market. And, um, <laughs> you go that route and you don't need it. But there is, from the, from the business educational standpoint, the one thing I like to put out there is all the books that you'll read that you can pick up, you know, on Amazon or Barnes and Noble or any of those places, they're good. I mean, they're, they're, they're going to give you ideas, but typically they're also written by people who have consulting services or other books. You know, that, that, that's their source of revenue. That's their source of revenue. It's like the guy that writes the ebook on how to make a million dollars writing ebooks on how to make a million dollars. But yet, you know what I'm saying? But yeah, yeah. made a million dollars. So, I mean, the, the stories are nice, you know, and sometimes some of the stories might ignite an idea, you know, which is which is nice. But if you go back and you start buying textbooks, uh, university textbooks, you know, 200, 300 level textbooks, um, and you start studying those, then you're going to learn the basics and the fundamentals and the principles of doing business. As a trainer, we all have basics, fundamentals, and principles. And those are, you know, how to manipulate sets and reps and tempo and, you know, training density and, in some cases, workload and all that. I mean, those are those are the definitions. Those are, you know, what defines, you know, what a training program is. If you don't know what defines what a successful business is because you haven't taken the time to learn the basic fundamentals of things like, you know, what are the components of a uh, profit loss, loss statement, what are the components of a balance sheet, what are marketing fundamentals, you know, if you're not taking the time to learn all those basics, then that's kind of like going in the gym and not knowing the difference between a set and a wrap or a barbell or dumbbell. Right. So your, your model would really be kind of the average of the 10 people you respect most uh, contrasted against, you know, the 10 people you respect least then? That's going to determine the values because yeah. just because I, you don't, it, on your list may be one person that influenced you because you just happen to say the right thing to you at the right time. Okay. And then that changed that I can't say the word very well, but trajectory of your life from then. So, for example, I my first, I barely graduated high school. I had to go to a small business school. So I went to a small business school. It really wasn't that hard. Um, so after I went through there, I went to Bowling Green State University and I plunked out my first semester. And then I came back and all through grade school, I was labeled, you know, now, it's, now there's a million different labels, but back then it was just LP, which was just learning disabled. You know, and so you kind of buy into that, you know, and then you you find your ways around it, you find excuses, and you know, you're, everybody around you 
wasting you know more time or he can't do this or he can't do that he's not good with this he's not good with that and so after I flunked out I came back and was when I was in Bowling Green I found this really cool place called the library which I never had seen one before because I never stepped foot in one right and when I was there I found the NSCA journal I found the Soviet Sport Review International Journal of Sport Nutrition and a couple others that were popular at the time and was just photocopying the shit out of everything I got four or five uh, huge notebooks just full of stuff from that as well so this coach stops me in the parking lot so I flunked out I had to go back home and um he asked me how school was going. So I just started telling him about, you know, Spazov and this Bulgarian periodization and you know, how they work up to these singles and then they drop down to do 70% for three and then they work up to a single again and drop down to do 80% for two. And I just keep going on like, you know, this is just this one model. This is the Bulgarian stuff and there's you know, people who are, you know, actually adjusting the linear periodization where it's undulating, you know, and they, it, 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 it's got like wave and it's, you know, it was, it was, to me, it was fucking awesome because all I knew at the time were like the leader principles and then, you know, basic linear periodization, which is what I was using. So I, he lets me go on for about 15 minutes and he stops. He says, I asked you, you know, how school was going. And I told him, you know, I flunked out. You know, it's just, it's just not, it's just not for me. You know, that, you know, my thing is the gym and, you know, I need to be in the gym and I need to be learning in the gym. And he flat out told me that, um, that I wasn't stupid, you know, and that people can say whatever they want to say. You know, they can say I have ADD or LD or whatever it is, um, but I'm definitely not stupid. I'm definitely not ignorant. I just sat there for 20 minutes and told him more about training than he learned in 30 years of training himself. He just told me I was fucking lazy. And I wasn't willing to do the work. That if it was going to take me twice as much as somebody else, then you fucking take care of twice as much as somebody else. That when I wrestled, I had no problem staying one hour after everybody else and getting there a half hour before, so what's the difference? And I left and drove around for about 45 minutes and I changed. You know, it changed everything. You know, so that one statement changed the trajectory of my entire life, you know, from there. So to be able to sit there and say, you know, do I respect him? Yes, no, maybe. I mean, he really never was my coach. He was like, uh, works as a coach like half of a wrestling season. I never took one of his classes. You know, we worked out a couple times. You know, for all I know, he could have been, you know, the worst person in the world. But for that three minutes or 15 minutes and that one statement, he changed everything. So it's not looking back to find the people you respect. It's looking back to find the people that said or did something that changed the trajectory of your life. And then what value was he showing me? And what value did he drive in my skull that changed my life? I gotta work hard. I have to work harder than everybody else if I'm gonna get ahead. And not just from the statement of, you know, you have to work hard, everybody works hard. No, I seriously have to work harder because things come to me slower. I have to understand that. 
So what does your day look like then, Dave? I mean, if you have to work harder than everybody else, uh, what time are you getting up in the morning and what time are you getting to the office? Well, because I'm because I'm a mashed up powerlifter, getting up in the morning isn't the most pleasant fucking experience in the world. So <laughs> I get I used to get up a lot earlier than I get up now, um, but I get up around seven, and then before I even eat, shower, or do anything, it's pretty much I just basically get up, get out of bed, and then move over into a recliner, and then pop open the laptop and just start clearing the spam. And answering the emails that came in over the night, you know. So I try to clear my inbox. So that's usually in about an hour, and then I'll read for another hour, which could be that's the textbooks that I was talking about because I can generally absorb things a little bit better in the morning. So then I'll plan on getting into the office sometime between ten and ten thirty. The time that I'm in the office, which will be ten thirty until. 2.30, I do what I define as administrative work. Keep in mind, I have you know, staff of people underneath me, and I have somebody that runs the office. So when I say administrative work, what I'm really doing is just kind of like eavesdropping and listening to see what everybody else is doing. <laughs> I'm trying to get a, well, I'm trying to get a pulse yeah. of what's going on in the office. You know, is there is there drama? You know, is there gossip? You know, is there are things stressful they can be stressful that's that's fine but you know when you start to have drama and gossip that's when I've learned the more gossip the more drama the more further away somebody's getting from the aim of the company and I've also found a correlation between you know inner office gossip and drama and online sales and I can't explain to you why but it happens and it's always happened and I don't know like I said I don't know why I don't know if it's unique just to us but it is most definitely a variable so if, if I'm picking up on that kind of stuff then I'll meet with my office manager to let him know to let her know you know there, there may be some areas of concern I don't address the areas of concern because that's for my office manager to do so during that time I might be answering emails I might be writing a blog you know I'm I call it kind of like brainless activities, um, the podcast type things, you know, that kind of stuff. Right. I'll kind of all fit, fit in that time. Mm-hmm. My kids get home from school around three, so I, I'm home when they get home. And then I help them with their homework for an hour, an hour and a half. And at that time, say six, I'll come back, train. That will be from six until eight, eight thirty, go back spend some time with my wife watching TV until about 10 and then at 10 I will work from 10 until 2 and that's usually the strategic work of the business um, the, the, the stuff I'm really paid to do um, you know where's the business going to be in a year are we on par you know looking at the different indicators of the business and all that needs to happen in a, in a quiet focused environment which is best done for me late at night that used to be done really early in the morning but I, I can't do it anymore it's just my body is too fucked up um, but I'll go to bed I and mean, that's typically how a day goes and you were talking earlier about your the mentoring that you do who are you mentoring and, and uh, how do people find you and what happens I have a it's a service that will come up 
has to see different ways, and it really depends upon who's, who's going to come and why they're going to come. But it's the time; it's it's, it's very individualized. So the time's either going to be all day Friday, all day Saturday, and half a day Sunday, or it's it, other times it's been all three days. Sometimes it's just two days. It, it really depends. And the the only thing that I that I make certain is it's just typically always a business owner or somebody that owns a facility. I don't really do training. You know, people come in and just to learn training. I don't do that because we have seminars for that. And, you know, I may, John Meadows and I are kind of talking about doing something bodybuilding, powerlifting oriented in the future, but that's really not what this is. The, it, it doesn't matter how many people come. What matters, though, is they have to be from the same organization. There can only be one profit and loss statement. That's how I define it. And whoever is the person that owns that profit and loss statement has to be comfortable with whoever comes, knowing what's on that profit and loss statement, with the exception of their income, which really isn't on the profit and loss statement. You find that more on a balance sheet. So I don't want two companies here at the same time because if we're working on, you know, working through the value system that I just talked about, working through a strategic objective, which is kind of like a five-year plan, and if all these things are, they're, they're personal, you know, they're, they're specific brand-oriented. They are, when you're dealing with, you know, going over expenses and expense, expense correlations, those are kind of specific too. And a, a lot of it's privileged and confidential where it should be. And it shouldn't be shared with other business owners. So that's why I don't like the whole idea of like a mastermind type thing. Right. That's great if you want to go down, you go down there and talk about things that might work. But, you know, I can throw out a lot of ideas that might work, but if the fucker can't pay for it, it doesn't matter. Then you got to come up with something that's more bootstrapped, you know, from a marketing standpoint. So you kind of got to know, you know, what that is. and Or they, they could just simply not have any records at all. They're just using a shoebox, which <laughs> there's the first problem. Um, <laughs> but then walking them through what they should look for if they are to, to look into investing into a program to make sure they don't invest into something too big. But usually half of the time then will be spent going over all that stuff. And then pretty much everybody to date has wanted they want to train so we'll train and then they, they, they usually want to learn some type of training stuff which I kind of let them define so it's kind of all mapped out after they sign up and the price is uh, it's ranged based upon the years it's five grand is what it was last time and that's if it's just the one person that's what it is if they bring five of their staff it's still the same but it's one-on-one -on -one with you for a couple of days, two, three days. Yes, and I can say with almost most certainty, I've always been able to find a way to save them far more than five grand just on stupid shit that they're doing that they're already paying money for that they shouldn't be. Yeah, but even more than that, I mean, I'm around a lot of other business mentors and uh, just what you've talked about in defining your values, I've never heard anybody go to that level before. Uh, I think it's 
obviously worth it just for that. And you said that's coming up on your site soon, right? It should come up after the first of the year. And then I'll try to do maybe one a month if I can. Um, it, it's, it's not like a big revenue stream for me. It's more just to help people, you know, that, that need to help. But, uh, you know, to fall back on the value thing, it's, you know, people, and I weed this out too, you know, when, when they sign up. If somebody seems to just be in it, you know, just for money, like they think they're going to get it, they're going to develop a, and, and some people can do this. They're going to get in, they're going to develop a business, they're going to grow their facility, and then they want to sell it after five years and get out. I can't help them with that. You know, I don't know how to dynamically grow a company. That was never my goal or intention. I don't know that. You know, we've we've been a business for 18 years, and I haven't really had to rebrand. I haven't had to change the vision. I haven't had to change the values. You know, obviously, you have to change as the environment changes and, you know, as the landscape changes. But a lot of other companies in the industry have to completely change everything to be able to last for 18 years. Well, you wouldn't have to do that if you stopped trade, if you stopped chasing trends and started developing brands. And that's what a lot of people do is they, they, they start chasing trends. Well, cha- trends are called trends for a reason, you know, because they will eventually die. When they die, you're dead. Um, depending upon how long the uh, trend can last. Some can last more than your lifetime, you know, then you're fine. But when you develop the brand, then you don't have those concerns. And if that brand is developed, you know, based upon values, you're never going to, I'm not going to say you're never going to have problems. You're going to have problems. You're going to have a hell of a lot of problems. I mean, you know that. Anybody that's in business needs to understand. You take whatever problems you think that you're going to have and multiply by 100. And that's just, that's just part of it. There's more adversity than there is prosperity. But if you have a strong brand. Yeah, if you have a strong brand, then you're looking at longevity. As long as you're not stupid. Okay. So, uh, you know, just to give you a final three-minute question here, Dave. um, What's a mistake you see gym owners making right now with their brand? And, uh, you know, I'm not sure... Uh, if this is just specific to CrossFit gym owners, but uh, maybe just kind of across the board, what are they screwing up? Everybody says they're different. <clears throat> but you give me 20 different gyms, I'll be at a sport training center or a CrossFit. I can't tell you how they're different. So there's where they're screwing up, you know. And they're they're trying to say, I mean, it, it's almost like, because um, I heard this said one time before, that people, how was this stated? Because I, I just I, I spit my drink out laughing. That they love powerlifting because it's so diverse. You know, the the people are so diverse. And I fucking spit my drink out. You're <laughs> you know, they're so diverse that, you know, like all of them had fucking bald heads, goatees, you know, took pretty much all 20 pounds overweight, you know, all a little bloated, except for the lighter guys. And how, how, where, where's the fucking diversity there? You know, 
mechanics of kids, but how are they different? You know, what are they doing branding-wise to really show that they're different than their competitors? And that's and that's that's that's, that's a hard question to answer. You know, yeah. if you have a business, you know, how are you different? But it needs to be asked continuously because that and it, and it needs to be answered not from your perspective but from the person who doesn't know any different who's trying to decide between two places they need to know how is it different you know and if you've had people that have trained in both places how what would they say is different you know that that's the biggest mistake when the brand with the branding because I mean you can talk about you know with the crosser you got the crosser brand but typically you still have and it has to be part of the name but there's still another part of the name which is whatever your individual name is right you know which you, you can kind of say it's a dual brand or it's co-branded or whatever it is um in some cases if people are doing a phenomenal job with the branding they can actually drop crosser and still continue to prosper if they're doing a shitty job with the branding if they draw the crosser they're fucked you know, because it's they're relying on the crosser part of the brand. Now, some you know may need to keep both, and I'm not saying drop one or drop the other. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just using an example of how of the branding experience and what it should be, especially at a local level. That's that's great. Um, I'm just reading uh, Zero to One again by Peter Thiel, and he's talking about um, you know the value of a monopoly and creating monopoly through differentiation. You know, when I look at Elite FTS, it seems like it's a monopoly to me because I don't really look at anybody else. But to you, I'm sure uh, there are other people who consider themselves competitors of Elite FTS, right? Oh, yeah, God, yes. I mean, we got competitors that are doing fucking 15,000 times the sales that we are. But, you know, I I don't look at... I don't look at my competitors from a standpoint of, you know, market share. You know, I, I probably should, but I really don't. You know, I look at it from the standpoint of, you know, are we, because you can't control what other people do. So I can't control what my competitors are going to do. The only way you could potentially do that is to file, you know, lawsuits left and right. And that still isn't going to control what they're going to do. It's just going to cost you both a bunch of fucking money. Right. You know, it's kind of stupid. You can only control what you can do. And so that's kind of where the focus is. But yeah, I mean, I have, there's more, everybody has competitors. We have competitors that, you know, have a huge market share compared over, you know, to what we have. But, you know, I can sit there and worry about it, or I can just keep sticking to the vision that's been, that we've had and keep building it and keep moving forward the same way that we've been moving forward for the past 18 years. And they're going to do what they're going to do. We're going to do what they're, or we're going to do. And, you know, hopefully there's enough differentiation or whatever you want to say that everybody thrives. Where, where people in the space that I'm in, when you start to deal with, there's two spaces really. There's the educational space and there's the internet retail. Um, there are some people that are still confused that think that, you know, we are only articles and we don't sell products. And there's some people that, a, a lot of people actually, more than the latter, that think that we sell products and don't have content. Um, that's kind of been the case since we launched the store 17, 18 years ago. The, the, where, where there's issues, 
copying you verbatim, they're going to fail because they don't have their own identity. They don't have their own brand. You know, they don't have their own value structure. They don't have their own mission. They're just copying yours. So when they copy yours, they might initially take a little bit of your business away from you. But all they're really doing is reinforcing that you're better because they keep copying all your shit. So they're actually marketing for you in the long term. Uh, I think that's great advice. And that actually hits home with me a lot. Um, so Dave, I'm, I'm going to leave it there because I've already uh, imposed on your time for 90 minutes and I really appreciate the help that you've given. Um, but I'd love to continue the conversation another time too. So uh, Anytime. thanks a lot, man. It's time for critical questions. Got a question for Chris? Email Chris at two Here's our most critical question this week. Critical Questions this week comes from my friend Jay Williams. And if you missed that podcast episode, go back in the archives and listen to it. Jay is one of the co-owners of CrossFit Thames, one of the biggest boxes in Europe, and also the owner of CrossFit Hale out in California, which is growing way faster than Thames ever did and providing him just as much income as Thames ever did too, with a much smaller client base. So Jay's question to me was sent over email, and we were talking about some other stuff, And he threw this at me. If your life depended on it and you had to grow Catalyst by 30% in the next six months, what step would you take? And of course, he's talking about net revenues. And to clarify further, he says, basically, what would you focus on for fast growth given that you already have an established and well-run gym? So for me, raising my net revenues by 30% is going to be a lot harder than for a lot of other gyms because we focus on a small client base. We slow down the intake process to make sure that we get the people that we want. You know, I often say that I would rather have four people come in the door this month and keep all of them than bring 10 people in the door and keep four. So raising my net revenue by 30% would be a really hard task. So I would be looking at uh, complementary revenue streams instead of adding you know, 30% more CrossFitters, which would be doing a massive disservice to the athletes that we already have. I'd be looking at things like tutoring, which has a really high overlap with fitness. Uh, you know, Parents coming in to work out, kid needs some tutoring help. There it is, and it's available to you. Uh, I go to tutoring because Greg Glassman said in his 2013 speech in Montana that the next field for CrossFit to take over is education, not really healthcare. Uh, if I had to raise my personal net revenues by 30%, I would probably acquire another gym. So I'd look for a personal trainer who's well-established and either set them up or I would look for a small, uh, maybe a CrossFit knockoff gym in my city, of which there are a few, acquire them and teach them how to build their business really quickly. The go-to, you know, if somebody's life depended on it, would be a 30% wage, sorry, a 30% uh, hike in membership. So I would actually charge our members more. Using the stratified model, my base CrossFit rates uh, are important, but really they're only 50% of the picture. So I talk a lot about this in average revenue per member articles on 321goproject.com. But if I boosted our CrossFit membership rates by 30%, I think I could probably do it without losing too many people. Uh, the people who come to our gym are not really price sensitive, but more important that they realize the value of our service goes way beyond uh, just the workouts. 
And so if I had to, if somebody's life was on a line, that, that's where I would start as a boost of 30%. And I'm sure that our current members would probably be okay with that, you know, given that I had to do it. But the real answer that would apply probably um, best for most of you guys is I would start by splitting down what my net revenue goal would be. So if my net revenue goal is to grow 30% over the next year, I would start by just focusing on growing 5% per month for six months. Or if we look at that as a, in a compounded way, meaning that I'm not gaining 5% in January and then losing it and trying to generate a new 5% in February, if we look at this compounded, I'd really be looking at maybe about 3% per month. That's really two sports teams. You know, for us, um, this time of year, we're training a lot of skiers. And so we'd sign them up for an eight-week program that would be worth, you know, $3,500 to $4,000. And if I did two of those, um, that would give me a net increase of about uh, 15 to 20% right there. So I could do that. Um, I would also be looking hard at the outliers, so corporate groups. At this point right now, um, incremental gain is not going to boost my net revenue 30%. So again, it's not a matter of how am I going to get 30% more clients because that, while it might boost my gross, is also going to add a lot more costs. We run pretty lean and tight. So adding 30% more clients is going to mean running more groups. It's going to mean more coaches. And that's a big ramp up process. So to get 30% net that way, I'd really have to increase my gross by about 50%. And that's that's a really tall order. So I'd be looking at uh, small group personal training. I'd be looking at sports teams. I'd be looking at corporate groups. Really at this point, I would have to go after the outliers. I'd have to go after, you know, the Hail Marys. Um, but I would just go after a lot of them. You know, I'd be going after corporate groups every month, just like we teach in 321 Go Project Academy. And I'd be going after uh, far more sports teams than we currently do, which is actually a much easier proposition than a lot of box owners think. The key is not to say, I sell CrossFit, CrossFit will make you a better baseball player. The key is to say, I sell the type of strength and conditioning that's going to improve your baseball game or you know help you work better as a team. The word CrossFit is going to be your tool. It's probably not your best marketing pitch because if you have a board, let's say, of 12 people and one person on that board has this negative idea about CrossFit, then you've lost your selling tool and it's actually turned around on you. So uh, it's become a negative. We know that CrossFit's the best thing that these people can do. They might not understand that yet. And frankly, if they don't understand it with perfect black and white clarity, if they're not already sold, in other words, that's going to be a negative for you. Every time you have to explain a concept in your sales pitch, it's just like explaining a joke. It's not funny. It's not effective. So luckily for us, you know, these teams understand now the value of strength and conditioning. Use that word, okay? How would I do this? Well, uh, we've just opened up a new facility. I can accommodate a lot more sports teams there. Um, Ignite is also growing by leaps and bounds, and I'd be focusing my energy there, but I understand it's not for everybody to do. Uh, growing my net might mean opening a second location. It probably wouldn't, because if I had to do this really fast, gain 30% net in a year, I would be looking to squeak out revenue from every square inch of the facility that I currently had. I would find a trainer who'd be willing to coach at nine or 10 at night or four or 5 a.m. 
uh, especially weekends, would be wide open for possibility. I'd be adding open gym time between my classes just to get a tiny bit more revenue right there. And then um, CrossFit Kids, you know, is a, a super popular program for us too. So I, I'm a firm believer in Dunbar's number. You know, I think that with 200 athletes um, who are high ARM clients, I'm not going to boost my net revenue by 30% just by adding more clients. That would not be my focal point. My focal point would be uh, overlapping services like tutoring. My focal point would be um, overlapping services like sports team conditioning, which is not an overlapping service really as much as it is just a niche, a different way to present what I know. And I'd also be looking for um, opportunities between classes. I'd be if I was most gyms, I'd be boosting personal training. At my gym, that is a huge percentage of our gross and net revenues too. So I hope that helps uh, maybe give you some ideas leading into 2016. I really think it is possible for most gyms to boost their net by 30%. And I guess the, the last piece that I missed there was most gyms uh, should be looking to cut costs. Their overhead is way too high. And so when we're talking to a lot of these gyms, the reason that they can't make a high net is because they're so focused on gross. I can't tell you how many times, dozens, I've gotten on the phone with somebody for a free call and they've said, you know, I have 90 athletes. I'm not taking a check. I just need 20 more. And the problem here is not the math. It's the paradigm that more athletes equals more revenue. If you have over 50 people who are willing to work out and do exactly what you tell them to do and you're not taking a paycheck, you need to examine your model before you do anything else. Something is flawed and just adding more stress in the form of more members on top of that model is not going to solve it. Plus, if you're counting just on getting more members to boost your net revenue by 30%, it means you're probably going to be spending a lot of time marketing instead of coaching. You probably hate marketing. You probably love coaching. And that's you know why you got into this business. And that is going to be painful for you. You're probably not going to be good at it. So hopefully this helps a few people out. This show is really about ideas. And so I just gave you the same ideas that I gave to my buddy Jay. And we will see you next week with another huge episode. We'll be talking with a mystery guest from CrossFit HQ. This guy is a really big wheel kind of in the behind the scenes circles. And you're going to get a lot of knowledge, a lot of uh, insight into the direction of HQ. You're going to get a lot of ideas from this episode. If you thought Dave Tate was great, stay in your seats till next week. Thanks again.